Okay, welcome everyone. Um, I'll introduce myself first. I have some uh, introductory remarks on the container sector. I'm the equity shipping analyst uh, at DMB Markets. Um, so uh, it's a pleasure to, to stand here and, and start this discussion. Uh, so um, I have prepared, uh, there we have Randy as well, um, I have prepared a few slides that I'd like to go through to just set the stage from where we, uh, how we've arrived at where we are today um, and a few of the developments and expectations that we have uh, going forward. Um, and I think, it's, um, I think it's good to start off with the, the situation and how that started off developing uh, once we were uh, coming back post-COVID uh, in 2020. And you had a lot of stimulus uh, hitting the economy, especially in the U.S., uh, which uh, ramped up the consumer demand substantially uh, and meant that uh, you all of a sudden were caught short with capacity in, uh, in container shipping following the liners um, uh, moving to remove capacity and adapt to a situation that was unclear and uh, very uh, negatively focused towards a potential recession. Um, and what you see on the left-hand side chart, uh, the dark green line is the, the index for rates and how those developed on the Pacific trade out of Asia and into the U.S. Uh, they started moving up early on, uh, as I said, a lot driven by the U.S. stimulus and how that was working out. Um, but it soon turned into a global event uh, once the, the other trade lanes were impacted by the same uh, capacity shortage and you had to reshuffle capacity and adapt to the current situation you were seeing in the U.S. Uh, one thing is that demand was high, but I think another thing that's worth mentioning and that caused a few problems to the supply chains as well uh, is the fact that this was a more of a one-way trade. And if you look at the right-hand side chart, uh, that shows the net imports into the U.S. during that period and how that escalated uh, to a level where you had a lot of inflow of containers over time that uh, was difficult to manage in the current logistics networks. Um, and that caused uh, a headache that uh, was set to last for a long while uh, and that we're still struggling with today. Um, part of that volume inflow that, uh, that all of a sudden bumped up uh, caused a lot of uh, problems with efficiency in port throughput, which was uh, one of the main reasons why you started to see congestion also building up in the ports. Uh, some of the indicators to look at with regards to the efficiency and how quickly you're able to put or to get the boxes and the containers out of the port once they've been offloaded off the vessels, uh, you see on this chart. Um, the one on the left shows the overall dwell time in port and how long it takes, i.e. how long it takes to, to get uh, a box out of the port and onto a truck and onto the warehouse, etc., um, and that escalated uh, quite dramatically uh, up through 2021 uh, when it peaked and then started to recover and come back down. Uh, what you see on the right-hand side chart, however, is the, the rail dwell times uh, for the same ports on the U.S. West Coast. Um, and what's worrying uh, is that it looks as though some of the issues that we've had all along uh, have yet to be resolved. If you look at the current rail dwell times, they're actually at an all-time high and even higher than they were back in 2021. So although this looked to be recovering towards the end of 21, since then it's taken a turn for the worse. And the question is really 
uh, how will this move going forward uh, and when will we see the efficiency come back into play uh, to where it was pre-pandemic, which uh, should resolve some of these issues that we've seen. So me, myself, being a shipping analyst, uh, we focus a lot on the shipping side of this equation. and. Um, what we do track is by using satellite data. Uh, we see how many vessels are tied up in port congestion compared to where it, uh, where it normally is. Um, the aggregate number you see on the right-hand side chart, um, and historically that number has been around 13% of the fleet tied up in port operations. Uh, the recent data shows that this is now 25% i.e. 12% above normal, 12% of the fleet taken out uh, in inefficiencies, essentially. Uh, that level has stayed uh, at the same level for some time. Uh, and although you hear and think that things are now uh, on a trajectory towards improving, uh, you still see an elevated level of inefficiencies, and hence a lot of the fleet held up uh, in congestion and essentially taken out of the supply side of the equation for shipping uh, from a supply-demand perspective. Um, the first, as we saw on the rates as well, the Pacific side was where rates started to pick up, and you see specifically for the U.S. West Coast on the left-hand side chart and how that has developed. Um, congestion there has improved dramatically. Uh, it's down, but still above where it tended to be prior to the pandemic. Um, but although that region has improved, uh, the East Coast has worsened, Europe has, east, uh, has worsened, uh, and the overall situation remains much the same. So the conclusion uh, as we stand here today is essentially that 12% of the fleet is tied up more than usual uh, in congestion, making the supply-demand uh, balance in the, in the container shipping space uh, rather tight, you can say. Um, <coughs> despite that, uh, these charts they show um, a few different um, uh, a few different pictures of various rates for the liners. So the, the, these are the box rates. Uh, the top left hand side chart is the spot uh, index. Uh, the bottom left hand side is the China indexes, so the SCFI and the CCFI, which are to a degree con uh, contract weighted as well. Uh, but on the on the right hand side, those are the average contract rates and how those have developed recently. So although spot rates for a time have been sliding, uh, in fact, the spot index is down 50% from peak in September last year. Um, the contract rates have continued to build. Um, and the question is really, uh, when are we going to see that change or how are these, these uh, indices going to develop going forward when we know the, the, um, the inefficiencies are essentially still in place? Um, and that's really what we're, what we're looking for right now. Uh, how is this looking longer term uh, and where are we headed? So, to a more fundamental perspective uh, and what to expect going forward, the, the slide uh, or the chart on the left-hand side here, um, it shows the aggregate volume growth in container trade and how that has developed over the past few years. Um, so, the situation you got into in 2021 post-pandemic was a recovery situation after two years that have been meager in terms of growth. Um, but overall, uh, the growth numbers aren't, aren't too high. Um, and the same is the situation so far this year uh, in a context of, you know, over the past three years or so. Um, the growth rate isn't, uh, you know, uh, very elevated, we would say. Um, a lot of this, of course, has to do with the inefficiencies themselves and that you've been in a situation where the capacity hasn't been any bigger. Um, but that being said, 
Uh, in a good year, you can say the average volume uh, or the, the volume growth globally might reach 5% or so. Um, and there is a question looking forward how that will be, uh, considering that we're looking into a potential recession scenario uh, in the medium term. Um, so that's the demand side of the equation, and then we look to the supply side. Uh, and what's happened during this period when the rates have been very elevated uh, has been that they, you've built a considerable order book. Uh, and if you look on the right-hand side chart, that shows the delivery schedule for next year and the year after. In total, you're looking at 21% of the fleet being delivered uh, over those two years. And if you want to couple that with a normalization uh, of inefficiencies as well, you have potential for another 12% being added to the supply side uh, if everything, to call it, normalizes. Um, and the question here is, is how will this look uh, over the coming years when you need to absorb that sort of fleet growth um, in the context of, uh, uh, as I said, a good year maybe growing 5% in terms of volume uh, globally. Um, so that's, that's the backdrop, what, what we believe has happened, uh, where we stand today. Um, uh, and then I'll leave it to the panel to discuss uh, what we should think going forward. And Jim Serenza with DMB, uh, I'll leave the floor to you. Thank you very much. Jorgen, thank you, thank you for your presentation. And so with that backdrop, telling us how we got here, combined with uh, Randy, who was on the last panel about the supply chains, I think we focused enough about how we got to this point. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Tassos Aslidis, CFO of Eurocis, Cal Dimbrosio, uh, founder and managing director of CMAX, and Randy Chen, who you've seen in the prior presentation, vice chairman of Wen Henlines. Um, Cal, in our conversations, you, you told me you had uh, no aspirations to be a shipping company. So why don't we give you a minute to start first and tell the audience a little bit about CMAX. Thanks, Jim. Uh, I'm Claudio Ambrosio, managing partner of CMAX Capital. Uh, we're basically a private equity firm that purely invests in container ships. So we're, uh, that's our focus. Uh, and we're philosophically buy low, sell high, and keep flexibility in the middle. It's, it's been sort of the way we look at the world. Um, it's makes it different than Randy, who's operating a company that has cargo, it's got a infrastructure, it's got a long, long life, and, and with Tassos as well, that's a publicly traded company that needs to show runway and, and growth. And from our perspective, we're looking to maximize investors' returns. Um, and we do that in multiple ways by buying efficiently. That's probably, from our perspective, the key thing is when you buy the asset, to make sure it's a good asset and you buy it at a good price and maintain operating flexibility, uh, both from charter durations but also low leverage, and exit when, when you can. And uh, from our perspective, we started the fund in 2013, invested in vessels through 2013, 14, 15, and 16, uh, and then played the market. Entering to COVID, we felt that the supply-demand dynamics were very favorable. So we left most of our fleet was going to be spot prompt at the beginning of 2020. It turned out to be a disastrous uh, move in, in the very short term. But then quickly, we, starting the summer of 2020, the market started rebounding, and we kept charters in, 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 in short terms and then uh, started putting longer to longer term uh, charters. Today, we had, uh, at the top, CMAX had a fleet of uh, 12 container ships, 
all post Panamax vessels. Uh, we felt that was a good segment to invest in, and uh, at the beginning of this year, we reduced the fleet to seven ships. We sold five ships when we thought it was a good time in the market. And right now, most of our fleet has got long-term cover through 26, 24 through 26, so we're riding the different ups and downs of the market and, and, and keeping our eyes open for good opportunities to both buy and sell. And Randy, why don't you spend a minute and, and tell the audience a little bit about your company? Sure. Thank you very much, Jim. And um, again, it's it's great to share a panel uh, with such distinguished members of the shipping community. Uh, One High Lines is a 100% container operator. We do own vessels, uh, but it's really for our own use, so we're, we call, it, call ourselves an owner-operator. Uh, traditionally, we've been um, known for our intra-Asia business. Uh, Pre-pandemic, that was 75% of our business, and that only included Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia. If you, if you also put Middle East and India within the intra-Asia portfolio, that was 92%. So the remaining 8% was Asia to North America, Asia to Latin America on the West Coast. Uh, because of the incredible demand that we just saw earlier that Jorgen presented, um, we did shift our network significantly. And so uh, we grew our North American portfolio by 15 times. So uh, it was a, quite a huge shift. And part of that was taking um, ships from the spot market, like what CMAX and some other ship owners offered. Uh, some of it was purchasing about $400 million worth of secondhand ships. Uh, and then now we're in the middle of a pretty significant CapEx expansion that will kind of uh, anchor um, no pun intended, anchor the, the presence of our, our presence in North America. Uh, so that's basically what we do, and uh, happy to be part of the discussion and look forward to questions from Jim and the audience. And, and Tasso's public company, but for those who might not be familiar, why don't you take us through your business? Thank you, Jim, and thank you, Capital Link, for organizing uh, another marvelous conference, I believe, and uh, thank you for inviting us. Yours is a traditional uh, shipping uh, owner, uh, we trace our roots all the way back to the 19th century, so we have lived through many ups and downs of, the, of, the, of life. Uh, since 2007, we are trading on NASDAQ, and since 2018, we are focusing exclusively on the container ship sector, especially the feeder and small container ship sector. I believe we are the only one public company in the United States exchanges, MPCs in Europe, that is focusing on the smaller container sectors. We have, we have uh, gone through a very difficult market for the last uh, 12 years up to the, begin the beginning of the pandemic, uh, up to the end, to the beginning of 2020. And since then, we have been able to charter out the majority of our tonnage at very lucrative rates, I should say, uh, covering ourselves for the next two or three years, and using some of that uh, cash flow to embark, to embark on a new building program, ordering nine new, build, new vessels in the feeder sector, trying to take into account all the environmental regulations and concerns, and that way leading the company into the next decade, into the next generation uh, of owners and, uh, and managers. We're focused primarily on providing good returns to our shareholders over time by exploiting the markets, both on the chartering side and on the owning side. Thank you. Let's talk about current trends and current trends that you're seeing, anything from asset values to day rates to difference in routes, uh, uh, you know, utilization. Um, uh, Cal, I'll start with you. you. You also told me that you always have a view, but you're wrong a lot. Uh, so let's start with your current view of what, you, what you're seeing. 
Well, I mean, we've all been, from at least the owner's perspective, experienced an extremely uh, volatile two years. As I mentioned, we, we started the pandemic with a spot prompt fleet, you know, which was a bit of a headache for, for a couple of months. But then it quickly turned around and, you know, we started seeing historical high rates for all our assets. And, uh, and that went through, I would say, the beginning of this year. And then as you know, the war in Ukraine started, uh, some macro uh, uh, lack of visibility, uh, some crosswinds started taking shape. Uh, the market definitely started cooling down. Uh, but right now, we're really bystanders uh, because most of our fleet is either sold, that we've sold a large chunk of our fleet at the beginning of the year, or the rest has got significant, uh, significant coverage. But there's a couple of, what we see is there's a bunch of good guys and there's a bunch of bad guys. Uh, the bad guys are the significant order book that's coming online. The bad guys are potentially lower trade growth. Um, and the good guy, in, in some ways, is the, the environmental situation. Our perspective is that we, we basically now have a modern fleet. We got rid of most of the older tonnage that would be vulnerable, let's say, to these uh, new environmental changes. But one of the main things that we see uh, as a possible cure initially will be slow steaming, uh, reducing the speeds of the vessels, which are now starting to, because of the congestion situation, they've, they've actually increased in speed. So we see that as one of the good guys. We don't know which guy is going to be, if the two bad guys are going to outperform the, the good guy, but that's our view for the time being. Um, we're not going to be in, a, let's say, in, a, in an expansion mode at the time being. Uh, we're also not going to be in a sales mode in the time being. Uh, market dynamics are not positive right now. If you read any of the latest reports, the container shipping sector is in decline. It's, it's, it's hitting bottom, all, you know, very negative press. So it's just a matter from our perspective to wait and see. And as I mentioned at the beginning, the key for us, what we've seen in history, is that debt is really the, the leverage that you put in these companies is what can really hurt you. And so we've always operated at a very low le debt level, uh, and we continue to do so today. And, and particularly today, now that we have long-term asset cover, uh, charter cover, it, 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 it gives us a lot of flexibility. And Randy, downstairs, you gave us some perspectives on, you know, how we got here and your, and your 10 lane highway. Mm -hmm. Why don't you talk about some of the, the current things that you're seeing? So, uh, what's interesting about our panel today is we're talking about two somewhat different markets, right? We're talking about the, for, for us, we're primarily concerned about the container uh, market, the supply and demand dynamics of that, because that's our bread and butter, that's our basis, that's what our shareholders pay us to be. Uh, but I, we do have some insight, or at least because we're a user of tonnage, we do have some of the elements on the asset side. Uh, and they're both linked. Uh, there's, some time, there's definitely a lag, uh, because depending on how good the operating environment is, it affects operators' abilities to, to charter in tonnage on a spot market, or if they've already chartered tonnage in, how do they deal with perhaps excess capacity in the different trade lanes where they, they lack the flexibility. Um, so the market dynamics that so you saw from Jorgen's presentation, there's a lot of headlines about where ocean freights are going. Um, I think the first thing to keep in mind, uh, and if you were last downstairs, uh, you'd appreciate this, that the, the last couple of years have been exceptional for, for container shipping, um, not just because of these huge changes in flows, but the net results of those flows uh, were that ocean freight rates spiked to all-time highs for an incredibly long duration. Um, like, we've seen spikes, but usually they're ephemeral. 
in a couple weeks. But this lasted essentially for 18 months. And on the good aspect of that, it generated tremendous earnings for container operators. But the bad part of that is that it did anchor certain uh, price distortions in the market for beneficial cargo owners. And the reason I bring that up is, quite simply, our market is an inelastic demand market. You know, the, the panel before, the congestion panel, they talked about supply and demand. It's all about supply side. That's absolutely true in our business. Because, again, demand is very projectable over a historical period of time. It is a multiple of GDP growth. It's a multiple of trade growth. It's very straightforward. What's really different is that because of the fact that the value of what's in the cargo, uh, in the box, is so much higher than even the historical freight rates that we've seen, we as the operators have no ability to enhance or impact what quantity would be. So for all intents and purposes, demand is straight up. And so it just comes down to whether supply is plentiful, in which case rates go down to near zero levels in different trade lanes or different markets, or if they're very high. And, and, or if supply is short, then they go to as high as what cargo owners are willing to pay. Meaning, like, it's not about what we're... Uh, it's not about our ask. It's literally a bid process where if you're desperate, your cargo's... There's no goods on the shelves. You know, your market share is dwindling as a retailer. Then it's a question of how much you want to pay in order to continue to have business. And that's what we've seen, is that that bid-up was not just extremely high and very aggressive across the board, especially for the U.S., but really occurred over a long period of time. This current period is a little bit different in that the expectations of cargo availability is is very high, meaning like there's plenty of cargo available because you've had systemic shifts away from the West Coast. So what's happened on the spot market to California, uh, to Seattle, all those different markets has fallen tremendously because beneficial cargo owners have de-risked themselves from West Coast exposure because everyone didn't want to be stuck in a strike situation. You already had a pandemic-induced congestive situation. Why would you want to also be in, in a scenario where the labor union struck, struck and then you wouldn't be able to move any cargo. So that had happened systematically over the first half, and that's why you have huge congestion on the East Coast where the rates have come off a little bit, but not to the extent that the West Coast has, because quite simply the flow has shifted. And so that's hopefully a little bit about how the market dynamics are happening right now, um, and happy to elaborate further. And, Doctor, take us through your perspective in terms of what you're seeing in current no, trends. I, I think uh, Charles was right in describing the market as having uh, a couple of bad actors and a couple of good actors. I think we are in a very interesting uh, period in uh, container shipping in particular, where high order book uh, and potentially high scrapping because of the regulations could tilt the market either way uh, two or three years down the line. Uh, demand is another uncertainty, given the geopolitical and other macroeconomic developments, the high energy prices, interest rates, the war, and the like. So we, are, we need to navigate through, I wouldn't say uncharted waters, but interesting and pretty wavy uh, wat uh, waters. Uh, one would need to think, to, to, to focus on a sub-segment level to try to sort out a bit, at least the supply side, I think uh, looking at uh, the smaller vessels versus the larger container ships, for example, on the smaller container ships, there is on average about, uh, I think, 20% order book. I have the numbers here. And 24% percentage of ships above 20 years of age. As the environmental regulations kick in, the smaller, which might result in some of the 
uh, older ships not being able to trade post-2025, then the different supply balance might emerge for the feeders and smaller container ships than for the larger container ships. So all in all, it's going to be an interesting situation that we might see segment differences developing in the container ship sector. And of course, all of us would have to deal with the macro, the macro picture and the demand that we're going to have to serve. Let's stay with you and talk about how you manage your way into, in, in, in and through this next cycle. Uh, one fortunate thing that the recent rise in rates uh, allow us to do is to be able to secure high rates for our fleet. I think, obviously, you have the one option is to sell your ship. Another option is to secure a long-term charter rate uh, at, at relatively high rates. So we have, for 2022, I mean, it's almost the end of the year anyway, all our, all our vessels are chartered. For 2023, almost 80% of our capacity is chartered. So we're also somewhat immune to what happens in the charter market in the, in the near term. And even for 2024, taking into account deliveries of our new building program, more than 50%, 55 plus percent of our, of our fleet is, um, is chartered out. Uh, so we have transformed market risk if you want to credit risk because we depend on getting paid on those charters. Uh, our comfort, the comforting factor there is that the people we are doing business with have, have made and are making more money than us over the last three years. All the liner companies, I'm sure you can attest to that, um, are making a ton of money. So we believe um, with things being normal, we would have no issue in... Uh, in getting paid by, from the charters that uh, we're doing business with. So in a sense, our focus is how to exploit the next two years, uh, identifying potential interesting deals, and also, as we already have done, suffer the company into the next decade of its life by developing a new building program and uh, getting delivered uh, of it. I want to make an, a quick point there. Compared to second-hand prices, new building prices moved up, obviously, but much less so. So the cost basis of the new building ships when they delivered would be much lower than what would have been if someone bought a second-hand ship the last two years. Thank you. And, Cal, you gave us some, some brief perspectives on how you're managing your way through the, the next cycle. Why don't you give us a little more detail in terms of your thoughts? Sure, Jim. Um, you know, from our perspective now, the key thing is operations. Uh, you know, one of the parts of that's been negative as, uh, that we haven't talked about is operating costs, crew, uh, spare parts, time on dry docks. All those costs have gone astronomically high. And, and with a high charter market, you can afford, you know, to pay more for that. But that is, is something that we're trying to rein in and, 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 and control a lot more and a lot of it is out of our hands, uh, but, but it's something that we're all, as ship owners and operators, are, are facing. Uh, I think crew demand is, is, will continue to increase, and, and that's going to be something that we need to really pay attention to. The other part that's that, that, although we're not, let's say, involved in it right now, we're trying to visualize how it will work, the charter market in our segment categories largely disappear. Either MSC has bought all the ships or all the ships are on long-term charters. So there's, you know, where we used to have 100 ships available in the springtime for when the liners came in to, to relet, now there's going to be just a very few of them. 
And in our business, most of the, the charters and even sales are done on a last done basis. And when there isn't a last done or there's one, one vessel that was fixed in the last six months, it's going to be interesting to see how, how that works out. Uh, the other part that, that I think we're all focusing on is the, the environmental requirements that will start taking place next year and we'll start grinding it through, uh, as Tasso said, uh, into 25. Where, uh, where unless you are a, a D or above, you're going to have issues with, uh, with getting uh, uh, the ability to sail the ship. So uh, those are things that we're all looking at. Now, most of our fleet now is it's, it's what we call an eco fleet. They're all smaller engines. They're all pretty much in, in, in good position to go through 2030. But, you know, we still have a couple of older vessels that we need to figure out and, and see what the best solution for those are. Thank you. And Randy, why don't you give us your perspectives in terms of how you manage through this cycle coming up? Yeah, I think that um, the way we look at down markets is it's a matter of exposure. Uh, you know, we've, we've had the unpleasant experience of going into a number of different markets that we don't have presence in now. We were, at one point, we were in Northern Europe, meaning Asia to Northern Europe, Asia to the Black Sea, Asia to Brazil. Anytime as a container operator you pull out of a market, it's extremely painful because you've already collected the revenue up front and anything that has been left behind, if you will, after the last ship sailing is there. For example, all the container equipment, it takes a tremendously amount, long period of time to get back. And so what we learned through that is you cannot just have a small slice into a market. You need to have scale in whatever market you're in. So that way, when the market corrects, you can, you can pare back the overall exposure. So we've grown tremendously in the Trans-Civic. We have no illusions over the fact that currently, you know, we, we may be selling 20, over 20,000 TUs a week into this market, but we may have to take a step back and look at perhaps a 10%, 15%, 20% reduction, depending on how severe a corrective environment may or may not be. Uh, so that's part of it. A lot's been made about contracts, about the fact that similar to charter coverage, um, you know, uh, container operators have been able to get uh, longer durated contracts from BCOs. There's some of that, um, but I do want to sanity check some, some of that because there is a healthy NVO, non-vessel operating common carrier market that does marginalize your ability to actually collect on the BCO uh, contracts. Uh, namely, the BCOs will come back and renegotiate even if they have a two to three year contract and say, hey, I'm still going to move cargo with this NVO uh, at, at the expense of our BCO obligations or con contractual obligations. So that needs to be managed in, again, your own exposure, uh, an operator's exposure to the market, their comfort level with being able to click, uh, so forth. The way it connects to the charter market, I do think that a very good point was raised, which is there aren't a lot of spot charter vessels left. Uh, because of the coverage that's been secured over the last couple of years. So in my opinion, that means there's going to be a bifurcation in operators. There are going to be operators who are not reliant on the spot market, like MSC, who've gone out and bought secondhand vessels because they don't need to consider three-year charters as part a significant part of their fleet, and won't have the type of pressures of having to pay for very, very high charter rates during this next period of time if there is a corrective environment on corrective operating uh, environment, meaning like if the markets are not able to keep up with pr producing the kind of earnings that their, uh, their charters, uh, their charter hires require, then there is going to be an erosion of credit quality because there have been a lot of new entrants, right? Not just smaller shipping companies, but you have large BCOs 
that have actually committed, maybe through other shipping companies, uh, you know, Costco chartering ships through uh, a ship operator, uh, and who's actually going to be left holding the bag in that type of situation? Um, meaning, like, who's going to actually cover that charter risk? I think is an interesting dynamic because, again, if you have scale, you know, you have several hundred ships that you're operating, your ability to withstand that type of dynamic is fundamentally different than if you're only operating four that are all operationally leveraged and the market has changed significantly. So I think those are pockets of, of uh, again, that's not the overwhelming part of the market. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to be, it's not, it's not that, you know, everything's going that way. But there is going to be a tiering effect for operators from where I sit. Let's move from chartering risk to credit risk. So, Cal, I'll start with you. How do you think about credit risk with your counterparties? Well, there's nothing we can do now because we're, we're stuck with whatever <laughs> we have. So, you know, we just pray that they perform well and they don't waste all the money they're making. Um, you know, I think that in our sizes, we're very limited. We can only operate with the largest, uh, the largest companies because, as I mentioned, our ships are 8,000, 10,000 TUs. So that takes away the smaller and even the new entrants that were really operating. They couldn't handle something of that size. So uh, to Randy's point, I think there is going to be danger. There's, we're already starting to see some of these new entrants having issues with, uh, with, with charter payments. But from our perspective, we have the, the, the top four liner companies as our counterparts and, and we're, you know, keeping an eye on them and making sure that, you know, we, we operate efficiently, that we behave ourselves and make sure that they behave themselves when, when the time comes. And Tasso, so I'll ask you the same question. How do you think about credit risk with your counterparts? I think I, I, I sort of answered it before. It's the same way. I think you, you try to work with parties that you feel very comfortable with and we have been lucky in fixing our ships to work with the top-tier companies uh, in the market. And that is the, the most comforting uh, uh, aspect of uh, dealing with the credit risk uh, situation. And quickly, I'll move change topics to talk about uh, the valuation of your stock, how you think about what your business is worth and how the market values your business, that, that sort of mismatch between your enterprise value and... Uh, I think a problem of being public is that market has an opinion about how much you are worth, and <laughs> certain times you tend to disagree with it. Uh, I believe, uh, I mean, we said it in every presentation we make that we are way undervalued. Uh, I can make a very quick calculation uh, because we have well we are well chartered over the next two and a half years. If I take only the charters that we have and assign zero revenues to the unchartered days over the next two and a half years, we get over the next two and a half years, from July 1st to the end of 24, 22 and a half dollars per share, counting all the costs. So this is what we trade about now. Um, if you, we have, in addition to that, over the next two and a half years, we have 5,500, five and a half thousand open days. If I charter those days at a quarter of what the market is today, that would translate to another 80 million dollars. That would be another more than $10 per share. So there you are already to 33. And then there is some still value left at the end of the two and a half years. So using scrap prices and at 400, not 575 that are now, that's another 10 bucks. So, I mean, you can easily break down the value and see, you know, where the tangible value is, you know, scrap price, 
contracts and an assumption about the future rates, very modest, and uh, we're trading at 50% of that. So hopefully we'll be able to communicate to the market to recognize it. And let's, let's go to a, a final topic because our, our time is limited now. Um, Randy, talk about the regulatory environmental issues and how you think they'll impact the industry over the next few years. Um, so earlier, Cal uh, referenced some of the regulatory changes that are coming up next year, and that basically is uh, the rules that kick in due to carbon intensity index uh, regulations. Um, what I, I look at it as, from our perspective, we always have to be compliant with what the IMO passes. Uh, the question is whether or not that regulatory regime is uh, drafted in a way that achieves what it's trying to do, right? So uh, even though the carbon intensity index, I think, is, is a very, has very noble um, objectives, the reality is how it's monitored, how it's calculated, uh, whether it's done on an actual sailing basis, uh, and for us, really on a per cargo unit basis, really per TU mile basis, um, is, is an important factor. So that's why I do think that if you look at the kind of earnings that operators have been able to generate over the last couple of years, and you look at the order book, it actually is, is not commensurate. What I mean by that is traditionally, if you looked at how much operators made in the past during boom cycles, and then how much they ordered, it would be vastly higher now uh, than, than it actually is. And that's because of stranded asset risk, because we still have the opportunity for these near-term regulatory uh, measures to perhaps be amended. And we haven't even dealt with the possibility of a carbon levy, uh, which is really the big factor that all of us are concerned with, whether you're a container operator or a bulk carrier, dryer or wet bulk carrier, because that's what, to be honest, society is, is looking for us to, to respond to. So um, we need to maintain some level of flexibility uh, because you can't be investing in the type of assets that are, you know, that are usually durated up to 15, 20 years but may only be economically viable for 10 years, and that's what's going to kind of dictate the, the new build future. But there needs to be a better dialogue really between the public and private sector to make sure that the regulatory environment doesn't have has, – has, offers a level playing field to – to both uh, operators as well as owners alike. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you for being with us thank this you. morning. Thank you, and to the audience, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.